It is a blessing to be with all of you this morning, gathered together, to hear, although at a low pitch, each other singing praises to the Lord, and to gather around God's Word, and underneath God's Word, to see the hope of Christ, hope in Christ, in the faces, and to hear through the conversations that we have of our united hope in Jesus, to worship our great God who has redeemed us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why we gather today. We gather in his name. And by gathering in his name, you know, we say at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name. Some of us do, some of us don't. But the intent of that, really, in the New Testament, is that we pray into the redemption that is through Christ, that we pray in light of God's will through Christ. And when we say those words in Jesus' name, I hope they're not just something we tack on to the end of a prayer, but rather that that is the spirit of our prayer, that we are praying to our God who has redeemed us through Christ. And it's in that spirit and with that intention that we gather here today to worship. I want to thank Trey for his God-exalting and faith-building sermon last week on Psalm 46. Thank you, brother, if you're here. If you're not, you'll hear that. Thank you for your sermon last week. But this morning, we will return to our series in Romans, and we find ourselves in chapter 2. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. So where are we in Paul's argument? And make no mistake about it, that is what Paul's epistles are. And that is, for that matter, what we find throughout the Bible, an argument. Paul is making a sustained argument from the very beginning. After his greeting, he begins in chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he goes on from there, and he is making a sustained argument. So where are we in that argument, in this most famous of New Testament letters? There are many great passages in the Bible, but as we've said before, Romans is one of those books that has been highlighted throughout the church's history. 2,000 years of history, Romans has been a very significant book in the spiritual lives of individual Christians and in the great movements of church history. So what are we looking at now? All people are under sin. All people are therefore under God's wrath. And all people, on account of that truth, or those truths, are in need of the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul does not want to say that quickly. He wants to unpack that and describe that and come at it from various angles and get trace all of the contours of it so that it is made abundantly clear to his readers, and for 2,000 years now and beyond, to anyone who would read this letter or who would hear it read or discussed or preached, he wants to make abundantly clear that we all need this righteousness if we are to be right with God. We all need a righteousness from God that does not come from us. An imputed righteousness reckoned to our account whereby God looks at us and says, righteous through the death and resurrection of Christ. And so Paul will go into great detail here, verse after verse and chapter upon chapter to explain that we are all, in fact, under sin. In chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, Paul describes the lostness of the Gentiles. He wants to really bring into clear view how lost in darkness the pagan nations are. The Greco-Roman world, 
but the world around the Greco-Roman world. And here, all of the nations marching throughout the history of the Bible, I think, are in view. As Paul considers going all the way back to Cain, going all the way back to the time of Noah, and then Noah's descendants in the Tower of Babel, and then marching through history with the great empires of the ancient world, the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, the Sumerians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, Alexander and the Greeks. All the greatness of the Gentile world placed under the verdict of God's wrath. Paul spends those verses, 18 to 32, describing all of that. And then in chapter 2, he turns his attention to the Jews. As I said last time, it is as though a Jew is listening to Paul as he blasts the Gentiles. And make no mistake about it, Paul is blasting Gentile wickedness at the end of chapter 1. But you imagine a Jew in the crowd who is hearing that, years and years of oppression by the Gentiles against the Jews, and the Jew is just clapping his hands and nodding his head and shouting, Amen. Amen. Yes, Paul. That's right. Those wicked Gentiles, those wicked Romans who've taken over Judea. And those wicked Romans who make our lives difficult, even here in Rome, maybe if there's one among the Roman readers who has this mindset. And so Paul turns from the Gentiles to the Jews in chapter 2. He turns to this man, this hypothetical Jew, at the beginning of chapter 2, and begins to explain that he too is under God's wrath. It's not just the Gentiles mentioned at the end of chapter 1 and Gentile sin, but the Jews are likewise under God's wrath for the very same sins. The Jew cannot rely on his Abrahamic ancestry before the judgment seat of God. When the Jews judge the Gentiles for their sin, but then do the very same things, and maybe a different version or a different flavor, maybe it looks a little different, but it's the same thing. It's wickedness proceeding from the heart, as Jesus will explain throughout the Gospels. When they do this, they show themselves to be hypocrites who are condemned as well. God's historic kindness towards the Jews is for the purpose of their repentance. Paul explains, not so that they can claim immunity from the judgment of God on account of Abraham. That's what's going on in the background here, is the Jews are claiming some kind of immunity or leniency on the basis of their Abrahamic ancestry. They come from Abraham. They are the people of God. And therefore, God's going to cut them some slack. They're not going to receive judgment when they do the very same things that those wicked Gentiles do. And that is what Paul is confronting at the beginning of chapter 2. And for that matter, throughout chapter 2. Paul instead concludes in verse 5, and you can look there if you'd like in verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That is the problem. That is what faces the Jew who is stuck in this judgment on the Gentiles while ignoring the fact that he commits the very same sins. And this righteous judgment of God that Paul mentions there in verse 5, this righteous judgment of God on the day of wrath is the topic that Paul moves to in verse 6. So that's where we find ourselves today in verse 6. The title for the sermon this morning is simply The Righteous Judgment. Last week we looked at the self-righteous judge. We have the human being 
who pushes God off of his judgment seat, goes and makes himself quite comfortable there, and begins to cast judgment on others, not realizing or suppressing the fact that he himself is also a sinner. That was the self-righteous judge. Today we look at the righteous judgment that comes from the righteous judge. And today, today will be part one, so we'll come back to this next week and look uh, at the rest of it. We're going to look at two things this morning, and you'll see them up here on the screen. Two things. Very simply, first, the principle, and second, the people. And we're, we're going to come back to the people next week. So this morning, we're going to spend all of our time looking at the principle. The principle of judgment and the people who are judged. Now, this is actually a fairly difficult passage. Uh, I came across a lot of difficult passages in the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of passages that are interpretively difficult, where there has been much debate throughout church history, or where there, are, there is much debate today among commentators of a particular passage. Those are always both challenging and exciting from a teaching and preaching standpoint. But one of the things that difficult passages do for every preacher or teacher is remind him of James chapter 3 verse 1. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So that becomes emphatic anytime we come against a difficult passage. How much more when one preaches or teaches a difficult passage about judgment? So, James chapter 3 verse 1 causes me to slow down and to really today spend a lot of time trying to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Trying to put before us Many passages that help to elucidate what we find before us. So that's one of the reasons why earlier in the week, I did not intend for this to be two parts, but by the time I got to the end of the week, that's what it is. So there will be many texts that we will look at as we go through the passage this morning. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, but we will read from verse 1. So I've already given the background, but I do want you to see that leading into verses 6 to 11. So here we go. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. It is perfect and profitable. And we must always bend our understanding to it on everything. Here it is. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The things just mentioned at the end of chapter 1, that is. Verse 3, do you suppose... O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then here we go, verse 6 to 11, God's righteous judgment. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress 
for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to God in prayer, ask for his help, ask that we would submit to his word, that we would understand his word, and that we would meditate on it beginning now and throughout the rest of the week, and for that matter, for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, Almighty God, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, God of the Hebrews, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Abba. Father, we come this morning by faith, and as you tell us to pray all things in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to you in him. So we come this morning, not apart from him, not to a generic God, but we come to you through Christ, you who have made yourself known in the person of your eternal word made flesh. The Son of God, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the radiance of your glory, the exact imprint of your nature. Father, we thank you for Christ, our Redeemer. We thank you that we get such a beautiful picture in the ark, the time of Noah, of Christ, and how you have placed us in Christ and sealed us in Christ by the Spirit, assuring us that though the flood will come, we will be saved. We praise you, God, for our redemption in Jesus. And we thank you that you have given us such a clear testimony of this redemption in Scripture and that you have told us what you require of us. You have put before us both delight and duty woven together as the sons of God, as the servants of our Master Christ. Father, this morning we pray that you would help us to see what it is to live faithfully As Paul says so often, to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. To be vessels and instruments for your work. To be cleansed, ready for every good work. To be zealous for good works. God, would you help us this day to see clearly what you require of us, what you call us to, what you've saved us for. Would we worship? Would we live out of this time? Would we respond to your word and not just perpetuate the thinking of yesterday? We pray, God, that you would help us, that this teaching would be clear, that it would be blessed by your spirit, and that it would be taken and applied to all of our hearts, even mine, even now, by your Holy Spirit, that you would cut us to restore us and heal us as you are the great physician. We pray that you would do this work among us now, in Jesus' name, amen. So we come this morning to the principle The principle of judgment. There are many things that we could say about God. Many attributes and titles that are ascribed to him in scripture. If you were to ask 
someone who is God. Uh, among us this morning, there's many, there are many things that we could say and would say about God. One of these titles, one of these things ascribed to God is that he is the judge. God is judge. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, maybe you'll remember right before the Sodom and Gomorrah incident where God pours out his wrath on those cities and destroys them. And there he is having a private conversation with Abraham, his covenant friend. Abraham calls God the judge of all the earth. Psalm 50 verse 6 praises God saying God himself is judge. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 23 calls God the judge of all. And James chapter 4, verse 12 says, there is only one, only one lawgiver and judge. But God is not just to be regarded as the judge. He is to be, re be regarded as the righteous judge or the just judge. God judges rightly. He judges in accordance with, with truth. His judgment of man is just. Perfect justice comes from his judgment seat. Psalm 9, verses 7 to 8, makes this explicit. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. Do you hear that? He has established his throne for justice. God's very throne is for the purpose of justice as regards the earth, as regards man. And then it goes on to say, and he judges the world with righteousness. Now when it says he judges the world, it means human beings. It means those people made in his image. And as we go, so goes the creation. We saw this in Genesis 3 and we'll see this in Romans 8. The creation groans, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. When we are glorified, the creation will manifest itself as being restored from its corruption. So when it says that he judges the world with righteousness, it means he judges us righteously. He judges the peoples with uprightness. This is the confidence of Paul as he approaches death. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Paul is there writing his last letter. This is the last bit of writing from Paul. And, and there he is writing to Timothy, and you see in what he says that he, his death is impending. He's going to die soon. Paul's going to be beheaded soon by the emperor in Rome. And he says this, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul takes comfort at the end of his life in the fact that God is, yes, judge, but even more that he is the righteous, just judge. The problem with the Jewish mindset, as Paul describes it here, is that in its hypocrisy and presumption, it mischaracterizes God's judgment. The Jewish mindset that Paul is attacking as he goes into chapter 2 defames the name of God. Because it defames the nature of God's judgment. It twists and perverts the nature of God's judgment. And we saw this in the Sermon on the Mount. How the Pharisees devoted themselves to the Scriptures. To the Old Testament Scriptures. And Jesus even says to them, you, you cling to these Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But they are about me, he says. These men knew the Scriptures, but we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount 
Beginning at the end of chapter 5, or the beginning of chapter 5, is Jesus will attack this mindset among the Pharisees where they set up these traditions that are actually contrary to the explicit, clear teaching of the Torah. The law. The Old Testament Scriptures. And here, once again, we see that in this Jewish mindset, which we could associate with that of the Pharisees in the time of Jesus, is this mischaracterization of the nature of God's judgment. This mindset sees God as partial. He's partial towards the Jews. It depicts him as showing favoritism or leniency towards the Jews Because of who they are. What kind of God is that? What kind of judgment is that? So Paul wants to make clear that God's judgment is not that way. That God's judgment is instead altogether impartial. Look at verse 11. The last verse of our passage. For God shows no partiality. That's the big idea of the passage. That's what Paul is moving towards through verses 6 to 11, is to basically say, look, Jew, Gentile, God shows no partiality in his judgment. This word for partiality or favoritism derives ultimately from a Hebrew expression, and you see it used in the Old Testament in Hebrew, and then it's carried over into the the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and then we see it coming through in the Greek New Testament. This idea of partiality is in Hebrew literally to lift up or accept the face. So when you read it literally in Hebrew, that's, that's the language, to, to lift up faces, to regard the face. What it means is to show regard for persons, to show regard for the person in Judgment, that is partial judgment. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 15 says, you shall do no injustice in court. Well, what does injustice in court look like for a judge? He goes on, you shall not be partial to the poor. Once once again, they're literally lift faces. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. In righteousness, meaning according to what is right, according to what is true, according to the facts, not according to whether or not you want to please this man or that man. Those are, that's unjust. That's an unjust court. James talks about this in his letter where there would be people coming into the church. It would be like here. If we had elected officials or, or business people or wealthy people among us, and we just kind of really wanted to get close to them, right? We, we put them in the best places. They became deacons and elders because they're the most influential guys in the church, in the community. That's the kind of thing that James is referring to there, is, is showing partiality, favoritism, regarding the face rather than the truth. That we see happening throughout the Old Testament, and it is attacked in many places. Unrighteous judgment or unjust judgment is based on the person rather than the truth of the matter. And what Paul is saying is that that is not how God judges at all. God's judgment is nothing like that. So then, how does God judge? If God is not that kind of partial, picking favorites, lifting the faces, unjust, unrighteous judge, then by what basis does God judge? By what criterion, by what principle does God render his judgment? The answer is clear. And very concise in verse 6. So look there. Verse 6. So now we're going to the beginning of the passage. We've gone to the end of the passage to see what it is Paul is saying. The big idea. And then now we're going to the beginning of the passage to unpack it a little bit further. And this is what he says. He will render to each one according to his 
works. This is a quote from either Psalm 62.12 or Proverbs 24.12. Who knows which of these Paul has in mind? Probably with his former Pharisaic background, both of them, and many others. And there are many others in the Old Testament that say basically the same thing. Verse 6 again, he will render to each one according to his works. So how is it that God is just and righteous in his judgment? Because he judges purely on the basis of works. Deeds. Purely. Paul is saying that all human beings, that means you, that means me, one day, all human beings will stand before God and God will render judgment based on works. Whoa. This teaching before we are unsettled. This teaching is found throughout the Bible. Throughout, not just the Bible, you may think, well, yeah, that teaching is throughout the Bible. That's the Old Testament teaching. No, 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 no. That teaching is found throughout the New Testament as a whole, that God's final judgment will be based on works. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Maybe you've been wondering what in the world you do with these passages. You just read over them too quickly. That's what it says. The same thing Paul says here. John 5, verses 28 to 29. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. Paul says the same thing. For we must all, he's writing to Christians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And I could quote many other passages to the same effect. Many others. Matthew 25 comes to mind. 1 Corinthians 3 and many others that we could go to and look at. Now all of this should rightly leave us scratching our heads. Right, And I'm sure you're ready to get out of your seat. You're ready to get out of your seat. Whoa, did you just say that God's final judgment is based on works? So you're either ready to get out of your seat or you're at least scratching your head wondering what in the world is this? That's what it says. Why? Why would we be scratching our heads at this point? Or ready to get up. Because the center, the very center of Paul's message is that we are saved, justified by grace through faith, not by works. That is the heart of the gospel in Romans, which is the most dedicated to the gospel exposition we have in the New Testament. So how in the world is it that in the middle of this clearest exposition of the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, we get this. Saved, justified by grace through faith, not by works. That our standing before God, this is the gospel that we believe, That our standing before God is based on the work of Christ on our behalf. That our standing before God is not in any way, shape, or form based on our works. But is entirely based on the work of Christ on our behalf on the cross. His righteous life and his sacrificial obedient death imputed to us. Such that, as Craig prayed earlier, we stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, covered in his blood, pardoned from all iniquity, right with God. That's the gospel. 
That's what Paul preaches throughout. And yet, final judgment is based on works. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? Romans chapter 3, 28 makes clear we're justified by faith alone. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This was the great rediscovery of the Reformation that the Roman Catholic Church was filled with self-justifying works. Just as the Jews were in Paul's day. Filled with self-justifying works in order to earn God's favor. And Paul says, and, and Martin Luther and others that are in the Reformation rediscover Paul in saying this. No. Justification is by faith alone. Romans 3.28. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If our standing before God is based on works, then we boast. Look at me. Look at me. I did it. I made it. I made it. I achieved it. I obtained it with my work. Boasting. Oh, not a single one of us would be immune from that. If salvation were based on our works, oh, we'd be filled with pride. It's not. And salvation is not something God owes us. That's the point Paul makes at the beginning of Romans chapter 4. It is not a due. If it were based on works, then God would have to line up our works and say, well, I owe you salvation. It's not that at all. So how is it That Paul can say that final judgment for every person will be based on works. Let me give you a quote that I think helps to capture this very quickly. It's, It's a big topic, but let me give you a quote from John MacArthur. He says this, The subjective criterion for salvation is faith alone with nothing added. But the objective reality of that salvation is manifested in the subsequent godly works that the Holy Spirit leads and empowers believers to perform. For that reason, good deeds are a perfectly valid basis for God's judgment. Let me say it this way in case you're you're totally confused. On the day of judgment, evidence will be required. Of course. Right? Of course we know that. No one stands before a judge without evidence. That doesn't happen. On the day of judgment, a public event before all, before all of God's holy angels, before the saints of God, those who've been raised up, and those who will go to hell, all people, all angels, There in that public event of perfect righteousness. Evidence will be required. Evidence that we have a changed heart. Evidence that we have been justified by faith. Justified by faith alone comes with evidence. Without evidence, it's not real. It's not real. Our deeds are the one thing that will tell the truth. Our deeds cannot lie. They are there. Deeds from the heart exposing the truth of the heart. What we really believe. What we really think about God. What we really think about his Christ. What we really think about the gospel of grace made clear in our deeds. It's not about our experiences or associations. It's not about sentimentality. It's not about a prayer once prayed in vacation Bible school. All of that blown away. What stands in the day of God's perfectly just judgment are deeds done in the body. It is about our deeds. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. Faith 
working through love. That's what Paul says. That's what matters. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision. What matters is faith working through love. This should be a wake-up call for all of us this morning. What I am here presenting to you is unsettling. And it should be. And it is probably, for many of us, strange teaching. Be a Berean and search the Scriptures this afternoon. Be a Berean and search the Scriptures this week. All throughout the New Testament, we are told that God's final judgment is based on deeds, whether good or evil. And yet we are told that we are justified by faith alone apart from works. Search the Scriptures, but here this morning, this is a wake-up call for all of us who are relying on some prayer we prayed or some sentimental experience or some association that we have or the fact that we go to church or whatever else. That's not going to stand on that day. It won't stand. So what kind of effect... As we move towards a close this morning, what kind of effect should a passage like this have on us? So I want to give four implications from Scripture. I'm going to give you four implications where this truth is taught in Scripture and there are implications in Scripture coming up out of it so that, so that we can deal with those. So what kind of effect should a passage like this have? Here they are, four of them. First, holiness, and fear of God. If you are living an unholy life, you need to ask whether or not you're a Christian. You really need to ask whether or not you are a liar. That's what John says in 1 John. You walk in darkness, you're a liar, and you do not practice the truth. Holiness and fear of God. That's the first implication of this. Listen to how Peter warns his Christian readers. Now, this is fascinating to me because Peter is writing this to Christians, clearly to Christians. And this is what he says, 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19. Listen to this. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. By the way, that's, a rep that's what Paul's saying, same thing who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So he points to the gospel and he points to this final judgment based on deeds. That is impartial. It's the same thing Paul is saying. The two are not incompatible. Justification by faith through the blood of Christ is not incompatible with final judgment based on deeds. That's what we find here and in Paul and other places as well. So what is the implication that Peter is drawing out? The implication of God's impartial judgment for his Christian readers. Here's what he says. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Is that you? Is that you, Christian? You just hanging out, doing the Jesus thing, taking it easy, riding the grace train. That's what it says. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, that is not a terror awaiting God's judgment. That is a fear manifested in holiness of life. We know that because that's what Peter says right before that. He says, be holy for I am holy. How do we fear God? We live holy lives. That's how we fear God. We don't, we're not always scared. Oh God, I hope, I hope you'll accept me on that day because I don't know, I don't know. It's not about lacking assurance. It's not about standing under God's judgment thinking, oh my goodness, God might not accept me. That was Luther before he became saved. It's not that. It's holiness of life. That's how we actually fear God. Once again, deeds. Everything boils down to deeds that proceed from the heart. Everything. To not do so 
to not conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile here as pilgrims on this earth, those who lay claim to the blood of Christ, to not do this, to not be holy, is to, listen, presume on God's kindness, just like the hearer at the beginning of Romans 2. It is to say, but I'm a Christian, just like the Jew would say, but I'm a Jew. It is to presume on God's kindness. It is to do exactly what that individual whom Paul addresses does. And we see that from the next passage I'm going to quote from from Romans 11. So let me go there now. So that's the first holiness and fear of God. Second implication, humility in the fear of God. And I want to take you here to Romans 11, 19 to 22. Once again, Paul's writing to Christians. By the way, I'm choosing these large passages so that we can see the context and see what's going on and see the argument. Because this is weird. This sounds strange to, I think, our ears. Romans eleven nineteen to 22. Then you will say, so let me give a little context here. Ethnic Israel has largely rejected Christ. And the Gentile temptation is to be proud in that I've been included, Jews have been set aside. And that's what Paul is dealing with practically at the end of Romans 11. And he says this. He tells them not to be prideful. He says, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. The branches of unbelieving Israel were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is what Paul says to that way of thinking. This is just a happy Christian, right? I mean, this is a happy Christian who recognizes that Israel's largely rejected Christ and that the Gentiles have been brought in. This is what Paul says to that person. That is true. You're right. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Listen to what he says to the Christian. So do not become proud, but fear. Same language as Peter. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. What? He's talking to a Christian. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. He goes on to say, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off, professing Christian. So we see there similar language, not presuming on God's kindness. That's a second implication. Let me give you a third implication. We are encouraged by this truth to do good works. We're encouraged to do good works. We need to be busy. Serving the Lord. Faithful in doing good deeds. That's what God's called us to. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And then listen to what he says after that. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The gospel pushes us forward. Keep going. Keep going to that day of judgment. Keep moving in Christ, covered in his blood, clothed in his righteousness, filled with his spirit. Keep going to that day. Don't grow weary. Oh, don't get tired of being a Christian. Fourth, and finally, an implication, a slowness to judge one another. Paul makes this case in Romans 14. So what I'm trying to get you to see is that not only is this doctrine of final judgment based on works, 
in light of justification by faith, and we're going to talk more about that next week, and is, not only is this doctrine, is this truth taught throughout the New Testament, and we, we have to reckon with it, but it's also woven into the practical applications of the New Testament for Christian living. So it's not just true, something that we ought to believe. It is something that actually propels us forward in how to even be Christian in the world. And we see a fourth one here, a slowness to judge one another. Romans 14.10. Romans 14.10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? I'm talking about here eating certain foods, and, uh, observing certain days, and so forth. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. In verses 12 to 13. Each of us, he's talking to Christians. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. I should wake you up. I should wake you up. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Why? What's the logic? Why are we not judging one another? Because it's just not nice? We just shouldn't do it? No. It's because God's going to take care of them. Who are you to judge the servant of another? He says earlier in the chapter. That person is God's servant. If they're not observing the day they need to observe, or if they're not eating what they need to eat, or maybe they are, whatever the case. God's going to sort that. That's between them and the Lord. So don't judge them in this matter. God will judge that one day when they stand before him. And give an account of themselves to him. So, as we finish this morning, I want you to notice one thing in particular. From a couple of these passages that I've just quoted. One thing that stands out regarding the Christian way of life. Perseverance. This word, perseverance, patience, endurance, steadfastness. Whichever of those translations you want to give to it is a massive biblical category. Before I was going off to Edinburgh to study, I remember I was working a lot on second century Christian sources called the Apostolic Fathers. People like Ignatius of Antioch and uh, the, well, the Didache as a, an example, or First Clement. Some of these early writings after the New Testament. And I was working on a research proposal, and I went through a number of things. But at one point early on, I ended up going with something different. But at one point early on, I was so struck by hupomone, this Greek word which means, it's here, patience, perseverance, endurance, and how pervasive it was throughout those early Christian sources, those children, if you will, of the apostles. As they're talking about facing persecution in the Roman Empire, as they're undergoing persecution, as Ignatius is on his way to be fed to a lion or a, a group of lions in Rome. Polycarp and others, Polycarp also martyred. This culture, this, this, this environment of suffering for Christ, what is the word that keeps popping up? And it was this word, perseverance. It was this word, patience, endurance, steadfastness. Fastness. And from those passages I just quoted to you, we see that in two of them. Let me point it out. Romans eleven twenty two. Provided you continue in his kindness. We must persevere, we won't be saved. You hear that? We must persevere, or we will not receive the crown of life, the crown of righteousness. Hold on a second, I receive righteousness through Christ. It's imputed to my account based on Christ's death. Yes, and yes, we will receive the crown of righteousness, the crown of life on that day if we persevere. Read Romans 8, 17, many other passages, if indeed we suffer with him. Provided you continue in his kindness, meaning if you don't, you'll be cut off. Galatians 6, verse 9, if we do not give up. Oh, how many stories have we heard of these glaring, glowing Christian lives, beaming with once saved, always savedness, which is absolutely true all throughout Scripture, but walking in this presumption, 
falling away. Falling away. Leaving the gospel behind. Going on, as the writer of Hebrews addresses, going on away from that hope that they are meant to cling to and hold fast to. Those people aren't saved in the end. We must endure to the end. And that is exactly what we find here in Romans 2 as Paul moves into verse 7. Look at verse 7. We're going to go there next week. But I want to just give you a little intro to it right now. To those who by patience in well-doing. At the end of the day, there will only be one person, kind of person in heaven. The person who is patient in well-doing to the end. Look at what it says, eternal life. That's who receives eternal life, is the person who is patient in well-doing to the end. Do not deceive yourself. That's who makes it. Through Christ alone. By grace alone. Through faith alone. For the glory of God alone. We'll come back to this passage next week and look specifically at the people who are judged in verses 7 to 10. And that's when I think we're going to get some more meat on the bones. Try to understand this passage a little bit better. But I want to leave us with this note. We are all headed to this judgment. You are. And you know, you know as well as I do, life is so short. I mean, some of us are already maybe approaching 80. But even for those of us who are a few decades away from 80 or 90, how quickly it goes. I remember when Jennifer and I were talking last night, just in the last seven years, our son is seven years old now. Just remember as though it were yesterday, the day he was born. Seven years. And it goes. Sooner than we think, we'll all be before God. We'll all be right there. Will we be found in Christ truly? Will we be found in perseverance? Will we be found manifesting the good deeds that validate our faith? Will there be evidence Will there be evidence on that day that you are in fact a Christian? Christian? Let me leave you with two passages or two verses. James 2.18 Show me your faith apart from your works. It's not real. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. By the way, this is right after the saved by grace through faith part. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Here it is, here it is. For good works. That's why you exist, Christian. For good works that bring glory to God. That we should, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Any claim. Before we close, hear this clearly. I think this is the big idea for us as we apply this to ourselves as hearers here this morning who claim to be Christians. Any claim to have Christ, any claim to have Christ without the works of Christ is a lie. It is a lie and you are self-deceived and still in your sins. Any claim to have Christ without the works of Christ will not stand on the day of judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that we would meditate on this, these difficult, even seemingly paradoxical truths that we would hold them well in our minds and that we would grow in our understanding of your word. Lord, I pray that this teaching is clear, that if there was a lack of clarity or precision, Father, that you would give me the wisdom to correct that in future sermons. And that in our conversations, Lord, that we would, we would chew slowly on your word 
and we would desire to understand it rightly. We pray that we would cling to Christ alone and not our works. For only through Christ are we made right in your sight. And yet, that we would, as Paul says so many times, be ready for every good work. Manifesting the life of Christ within us. In Jesus' name, amen.